did and commands. And so those are the three tests that, that kind of John lays out in his letters. And he doesn't commun- communicate these in like a linear fashion. So he doesn't go, this test A, B, C. But what he does, and it's brilliant, is he, he it's almost like a screw that he wants to drive into the hearts and the minds of believers. Because he keeps revisiting these topics over and over again. And he builds understanding as you progress through the letter. And so you'll see these tests of love and obedience and truth all throughout these five short chapters in the letter of John, because John is building upon our understanding. It's great. And so today we're going to look at the test of love really in depth, because loving the right way is a great concern of John. And so if you would, let's just go ahead and open our Bibles here. We'll have it on the screen. We'll read verses uh, in chapter 3, 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to live, ought to lay down our lives for our, the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we, have kept his, because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. And this is his commandments, that we would believe in the name of the son, his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And so as we read over And over this text, or as I have read over and over this text, there essentially are three questions that we rightfully need to answer. Three questions. Number one is, why would the world hate us if we are marked by love for one another? Number two is, why is love for our brother and sister an assurance of salvation, but not love of neighbor? Our neighbor and brother the same? And the third is, what will this kind of love cost me? And so these are three questions that are deep questions that I have sat in, and I think this text brings to us. Uh, and it sounds like a monumental task to go through these questions in the time that we have. And so today, we're just going to go through one. And we'll continue part two next week because I think we have to do justice to these questions. So we're going to 
Focus on one question this week. And that question is, why the world hates us? Why would they hate us if we are marked by love for one another? You know, it does seem puzzling. If you consider the massive contributions that the Christian community has made to this world, contributions more sizable than any other group in history. If we just think of John in the context of him writing this letter, where he was at, he was under a Roman rule, an oppressive, brutal Roman rule. What brought that Roman rule to an end? It was the prayers of the saints. It was the spread of Christianity that halted the brutality of the Roman era. And if we think of our own country, we understand that this country founders were mostly believers. And they devised freedoms and morality and governances by what they had learned in the Bible. They constructed a constitution and a bill of rights for love of neighbor and love of brother. And furthermore, it was the Christian community both here and abroad that stood up to the great injustice of slavery. It was the Christian nation that walked in progressive nature to liberate women from oppression. Christianity has fought justice throughout the world in every moment. It was the Christian community that invented hospitals and established thousands of them throughout the world, that that established thousands of orphanages, that built schools to educate people, that invented uh, the world of science even. It was Christianity that put the majority of the world's languages into written form that formed the origins of colleges and universities. Every Ivy League school that you know was founded from a church, and now they despise those churches. It was the Christian faith that established food banks, thrift stores, and homeless shelters for the poor, assisted living centers for the sick and the elderly, retirement homes. It was the Christian community that built thousands of medical centers across the world crisis pregnancy centers, adoption agencies, legal aid services, YMCAs, YWMCAs, rescue missions and salvation armies, and the list goes on and on. It is today, it is the fight of Christians to bring clean water to the third world. We lead the charge. And so with that in light, how is it that the world could come to hate those who profess the name of Christ? in light of the fact they have done very little in comparison to what those who love Christ have done. Why? Well, John recounts words in this letter that he records in the Gospel of John, and those words were spoken by Jesus. Jesus says in chapter 15 in the Gospel of John, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. But if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so Jesus is saying the most basic reason that the world hates you is because you're mine. Because I called you son and daughter, and I'm refining you into my image, into my love. That's all the world needs to hate you. And friends, it is. We have thousands upon thousands of Christian brothers 
who are dying across the world because they profess Christ, and they've done nothing but profess Christ. Now, we have well-meaning believers and Christians that have speculated that the world would be more receptive to the message of Christianity if we would adopt a better approach or if we would start with filling people's needs first or massaging the message to be more relevant to the world. But Jesus says that hatred can come with nothing more than being associated with him. And John compels the reason why in this text. We read in this letter, John says that in the beginning, love existed. Like this isn't a new idea that we picked up from Ikea and we're trying to assemble. Love has always existed. It's existed because God has existed. And we have in us the very DNA of God. We have love that lives inside of us because God's DNA is love. And we should keep it and not be like a man named Cain. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Cain, Cain was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. His younger brother was Abel. They were born to parents who pursued righteousness despite a really rocky beginning in the garden. And Cain came to hate Abel simply because God favored his sacrifice over his own. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. Cain brought to God in a sacrifice some fruits of the soil. Abel brought the fattest portions of his firstborn of the flock. God showed favor because Abel said, I trust you, God. I'm going to give my best to you. I'm going to show my faith in you. I'm going to walk righteously. I'm going to show you my love for you. And it was out of Abel's desire to be righteous that Cain killed him. Abel did nothing, nothing to Cain. Nothing to Cain but pursue delight in the Lord in his sacrifice, to, to show his dependence and his love on the Father. He hated him because of his good deeds. Cain killed him because of his good deeds. John contends that simply living to be righteous, practicing righteousness that we talked about last week, living in the light, being in the light so God can reveal to us our shortcomings and we can confess them to him, that we would return to the one who have made us righteous over and over again. Simply by doing that will cause disdain for you in this world. And so where I would agree with my brothers and sisters who say that we need to change our approach is simply that we, we would not be hated by this world because we hate the world. That we would only be hated by this world because of our pursuit of righteousness, pursuit of God, and our love for one another. Not because of our disdain and hatred for them, people, or a hypocritical judgment on them. We don't need to give them any more cause in this. But what seems as a more recent phenomenon is the popularity that is growing to show disdain for those of Christ, to, to come to hate historical, orthodox Christianity. It is a phenomenon that keeps building. And there should be or could be many, many different reasons for that, but, but I think there are two central ideas that cause this. Number one, the definition of love has moved. And number two is a lack of assimilation creates disdain from the mainstream. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time 
here. When John talks about the world, he is talking about the fallen world who does not love God, who don't love Jesus, that have chosen their own way rather than God's, that they would rather pursue their own welfare, their own happiness, their own desires. And in that, they have changed the definition of love because we all were created in the Imago Dei. We all have the image of God stamped on us, which means that God's DNA of love is in every one of us. But it's broken and fractured since the fall. And Christians simply say, I would rather go to the author of my life to understand what love is, where the world would look to each other to figure it out. And that is why the definition has moved. And so John being a great teacher, John's a great teacher. John uses comparison and contrast very well in his letters. He talks about darkness versus light. He talks about those who love the world versus those who love the Father. He talks about those who are in the practice of sin versus those who are the practice of righteousness. And here, John talks about love versus hate. We learn better by contrasting things. I know that I'm slow because I've seen fast. I'm slow. I've seen what fast looks like. And so John really builds what love is by contrasting it against hate. And so our responsibility is to talk about what is John's definition of love here? What is John talking about when he says the word love? Well, if we as a Christian are going to look for the definition of love, we would look in our text. And we would look specifically at the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth in the 13th chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Most of you read this at your weddings. This is a great definition of love. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Where would you find a better definition of love than that? This is the type of love that we should be known for by each other. This is the type of love that the world should know us by. But I think that there is a passage in this verse, in these passages, that makes the world of difference. The passage says that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Because at the center of Christian love is truth. What truth? Because what truth you compel at the center of love affects it greatly. So what is our truth? It's the gospel of Christ. And so if we would look at Christ-like love, we would say at the center of that love is Christ, the truth of Christ. At the core is a love of a God who came to rescue us, that wanted to make right our condition of sin by becoming sin, then by his death and resurrection, imputing us righteousness, giving to us righteousness by the gift of grace through faith so that we could have fellowship with God. That is the center of Christian love. It says you couldn't so much so that the only way you could be fixed was for God himself to come into this world and do it for you. And that creates a new motive. And so the motive in Christ-like love is to love because he loved you. It's reactionary. It's produced by understanding what great love our Father has had for us. We love because he first loved us. 
We are his adopted children. He delights in his children. We love because of him. And that love is rooted in self-denial, grace, selflessness, and action. My desire is to look like the one who loved me, meaning it is no longer about me. I desire to love the way the Father has loved me. It is no longer about my wants, my desires, and my happiness, but rather his for my own good and joy and flourishing on this earth. And that love is informed by his grace, grace that has overlooked my wrongdoing and gave me righteousness or right standing in front of a holy God, love that has granted me grace while I was still an enemy of God, while I was still unlovely, grace and nothing more than grace, unmerited favor from God. And because I've come to realize, we've come to realize I'm so thoroughly loved by a holy creator, awesome God, I don't need to crave the world's love. I am simply living this life for him in a way that I get to practice love with people in my life because practice makes perfect God's love in me. I get to practice my love that Christ has given to me on you that I might be more a perfect image of my father. And our father was moved out of his love to action. He went to the cross his love is not an emotional love, but one of action. He showed his love for us through action, and so should we. And so this is the ethic of this love. When I say that, it, this is how we apply the love of Christ. It's specific, and it's free. It's specific, and it's free. Christ's love is calculated, specific, and it's free. His blood was sufficient to cover the sins of the world, broad enough, wide enough, deep enough to cover the sins of the world, but laser-focused on your sin and my sin. His love is laser-focused on you and me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. And it is a free gift by the means of grace for anybody who puts their hope and trust in Christ. And so when we look at this Christ-like love, we have to come to think, what does the world think of love? It's a different definition. And I'm not going to say that everybody in the world believes this, but certainly the messages, the predominant voices of our culture in social media, on our TV, and other places compel this type of love. And so if we would look at world-like love, we would come to know at the center of that is a concept. It's a concept like peace or harmony or value or worth. It's this idea, a concept. Can't we all just get along is what it says. And the problem with having a concept at the center of love is, is because of our sinful condition, we bend ourselves towards selfishness. And so each individual, because it's not centered on truth, but rather a hopeful reality or a hopeful idea, each individual decides for themselves what their version of that idea looks like. What's my version? So it ends up quickly becoming about my peace or my harmony or my worth and my love. It quickly becomes about oneself. And that motive says this, love me because I need it. It quickly 
finds a selfish vein. It communicates, you, person, love me. You love me. And look, we should. Absolutely should. Unfortunately, though, when one doesn't rejoice in the truth, but in multiple different versions of their truth, love proves to be inconsistent and fickle. And it will cause them to always crave love. And when they do, they'll find themselves looking for better people. We'll find ourselves looking for better things that will love me the way that I deserve to be loved. And in that, we begin to compromise our values, our morals, and our ethics to find it, all while tragically never coming to grips with the infinite love that our Father has for us, every one of us. And so that love gets rooted in this. It gets rooted in tolerance, acceptance, selfishness, and passivity. Love in this world is quickly becoming superficial, more and more superficial. It's, it's no longer something to be sacrificed for, but rather just a simple feeling to have towards each other that tolerates and accepts fully whatever it is that I want in my life without you getting in my way. Love becomes just let me be what I want to be, stay in your lane, and keep moving and smile at me and cheer for me. And so the application of that love is this. The love ethic is, is it's generalized and it's demanded, it's pressured. If we talk about social media and connectedness, like, look, we are closer together today than we've ever been, which is of benefit. But the longer that I live on this world, the more tragedy in it I see than benefit. We are losing deep relationship. We are sacrificing deep conversation, abiding friendship. It's, those things are becoming more and more things of the past. And what is more important is a superficial, generalized love for one another that requires nothing of me but to hit the like button. And if one acts outside of what the mainstream thinks that love should look like, they are pressured by the means of guilt and shame to force them and others to fall in line. It is to take you and say, look how wicked this person is. Do not be like them with the hope that they will guilt and shame others to not have that exposure in their life. And so when you put these two definitions on the board, we can see that in this world that definition has moved. It's changed. And this is some of the reason of the disdain. But the problem for me, and I think the problem for you, is that, like, look, because of Christ, I'm compelled to love. I'm conditioned to love. But I'm consistently pressured by this world to, to love according to somebody else's definition and not to Christ's definition. There's this constant pressure to assimilate. And that's our second reality. That's our second reason is lack of assimilation creates disdain from the mainstream. And to be most honest, because we need to be honest, we have some penance or repentance here to own. We have been the mainstream in the past. And I'm not talking about you specifically or me specifically, but as Christ followers as a history, we have been the mainstream in this country, and sometimes we have used unethical and unloving means to make people assimilate to our message. 
And we as believers need to take responsibility. It has caused some friction in our world. But today we find ourselves in the most interesting of positions. We are not the mainstream. Not even close. We are the opposite of mainstream. The Christian message and the Christian faith, despite what the poll numbers might say of the percentage of people who claim to be Christians in this country, that message is by far the weaker message. We are not the predominant message in this culture. And as mainstream moves upstream or downstream, whatever stream you want to put it, there will be an increasing pressure for us to assimilate or be villainized and hated. And history has shown that any group that is unwilling to assimilate to the mainstream any group that mainstream is uncomfortable with their message or uncomfortable with them, what they will do is create a mass of people through the means of messaging and guilt and shame to build a locomotive, an army of people that has the momentum to run over, to dismiss, and to harm that group of people. But what's increasingly new in this day is that the center of the movement against those who are Christ followers is love. And this is sneaky. It's not about hate, it's about love. It's about their definition of love, tolerance, passivity, uh, selfishness, uh, acceptance. The idea of loving one another is what the world will use as, as a, to convey its message to build its masses against those who are of faith. It's a sneaky message. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do? Well, friends, I would just say that like, don't lose hope. God is not oblivious to this. He knew that this would happen. He reminded us this would happen. In his gospels, he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. He's overcome this world. We simply need to remember who Jesus is. Because what's at our center, what's at our core, what's at our ethic, what's in our motive is far better and, and more fulfilling than anything of this world. It is not empty. It's not a feeling to be chased. It's a tangible hope to live in. Look, Jesus said in Luke 6, he said, blessed are those when people hate you. Blessed are those when they exclude you or revile you because of my name. And then he goes on to say, but love your enemies. Our response is not hate. Our response is love. Our response isn't changing the message of Christ or having a better approach. God builds his church. He is bigger than us. Our fight is to remain in the love of God. Our fight is to remain in the love of God. You know, we sang a song that says, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. You know, Psalms 37 says this. I think this is a great psalm. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. 
trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. There's another translation that says, he will make your righteousness shine like the sun. And so friends today, look, this was going to happen. It is going to happen. Christianity has always existed in the fringes, amongst the marginalized and the poor in spirits. We have lived on a honeymoon where we have been the mainstream for so long. But we need not fear, because we don't have a God of fear. We have a God of love. And we are simply to remain in his love, abide in his love, and draw close to him for our joy and our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, it begins to get easy to forecast out what the world will, be look, will look like when I think of my kids and my grandkids. And it's easy to create anxiety and fear around that. But Lord, we, we dismiss that today in your name. Lord, will you make us a, a rock by your love that we would pursue you and righteousness above all things that we would choose not to convey hate, disdain, but Lord, that we would walk and remain in your love. And so Lord, give us peace, build us up in truth, pour your lives into us, Lord, that we become anchors of the faith in our families and the world around us. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your faithfulness and love to us. It's in your name we pray all this. Amen.